0: That's awesome. Now we're speaking with Professor Charnas, who teaches in the Economic Department at the University of California in Santa Barbara and was one of Nick's professors when he was there. Actually, I would say my favorite professor.
1: Oh, professor you're
2: I, I got to give you those props. So really excited to have you on the Yeah,
0: the thank, you. thank you for taking the time to talk to us. All right. First of all, I think a lot of people, unless they're, they might be fans of like free economics or something, but a lot of people don't necessarily know what behavioral economics is. Mm-hmm. So could you give us a quick uh, sort of overview of what it is?
1: Well, you know, really at its core, behavioral economics moves away from the central assumption that people only care about money and that people are perfectly rational. So uh, it turns out that people do care about other things than money about themselves. They care about other people. And they're not perfectly rational. They can't, they can't do every problem. And they have certain, you could call them biases or proclivities or whatever, and behavioral economics is, I mean, really at its core, again, it's just looking at how people behave as opposed to what theory might say that they should behave.
0: Okay, great. So, and obviously we can, that can be applied to all sorts of things, governments, all business, sorts of things, vaccination yeah. programs, whatever it might be. Right. So what are some of the things that you like to focus on? What are some of the projects that you really like get to sink your teeth into?
1: Some of the projects that I've done, I, I became known for what's called social preferences, which involves how people would sacrifice money to help or hurt other people. Uh, one of my favorite projects was one where we paid people to go to the gym, we paid students to go to the gym, they're all gym members, and we wanted to see if we could uh, develop a habit of people going to the gym after we stopped paying them. So we found that this worked, at least in the short run, or at least the medium run, with uh, people in a worked particularly with people who uh, hadn't been going regularly. That was a nice little study. I have another study where I look at, uh, well, game theoretic type of things, but what do people do in certain situations? That's too vague. I won't go down that road. Uh, A lot of my research has to do with communication and how you might get good outcomes, good social outcomes in environments that are difficult but when people communicate, when they say something, when they, for example, promise, they make promises, people don't like to break promises and people don't like to disappoint the expectations of others that they've helped create. So those are a few different directions of projects that I've done. I like to see what people do and I like to tweak uh, the environment to see what will help. For the gym one, Gary, did
2: you have to like filter by like their income level? Because like, I, I guess... I guess there must be a difference if if someone has a as a very you know is super rich versus someone then that's
1: uh, super. I don't know if that would make any difference. Actually, I mean, no, we didn't do that. We had students. Now you can say that's already a filter because they're at uh, well, these students were at University of Chicago, and then the second study was at East University of California, San Diego. Yeah. So probably there aren't very many poor people in the first place. Right.
2: Um, after what? Uh, after how many days or weeks did you find the drop off uh, really start kicking
1: in? Once you stopped? We didn't really find a drop off. Really? We could observe how they had a long, how frequently people had been going before the intervention. The intervention, uh, the one that was successful was one that was they had to go eight times in a month. Uh, we had another one they only had to go once during a week. We paid them a hundred dollars to go eight times in a month. Um, And then we observed their attendance rate after the intervention was over. In the first study, we didn't get any drop-off rate. In the second study, we were only able to observe six weeks after the intervention, the first one. The second one, we had 12 weeks after the intervention. We didn't see a drop-off rate. Uh, It would eventually happen, I'm sure. Um, One issue is that we scheduled it so that there weren't any breaks. If you have a break, you have to reestablish a habit after a break. There have been some other studies that followed up on ours. Um, So we didn't see a drop-off rate. Um, Again, there's more study that needs to be made on that subject, but um, it really, again, was effective only for the people who hadn't been going regularly. The people who had been going regularly means once a week, uh, our definition. And uh, it was effective. It got written up in the New York Times. It got written up in various places. It was a fun study.
0: The idea there, I guess, is that you're incentivizing people to make the change. But then once it becomes a habit, then it's intrinsic motivation. Right. So
1: the idea for the study.
0: And also, I guess you had to filter by people that previously weren't
2: going to the gym even once a week and then only started going after you paid them.
1: right? Right. Well, we had their attendance records from before. Right. So that's how we classified them. Um, what was your questionnaire? I, f- I forgot what you just. said. So, so basically, you're incentivizing the change. Itself. Oh right. So the way the, what I was going to say is the idea for the study came from uh, I had my well my older son at this point he has he had trouble getting uh, good grades in spelling tests so my wife had this idea of paying him five dollars to get a hundred percent and he started doing it and then after a while we stopped paying and then for a while after that he still kept doing it because he had developed as you say an intrinsic taste for getting high scores he hadn't realized he could enjoy doing that with the gym you can tell a story of habit formation uh you can also tell a story that people don't know their own preferences
0: well but isn't isn't there also especially with the example of the spelling test like there there's a larger uh pain of loss than there is a ga- like a joy of gain right isn't it's that it was the same in trading like when i would trade yeah. like the fear of missing out on a good trade was like uh, right. way more than the pleasure right. of so making the Right, so once you're getting 100s hundred, rather to then possibly get a 90 hurts a lot more, I think, right, than the idea of like going from 95 to 100, for example.
1: So that's true. So, so there's something that, this actually hasn't been studied that I'm curious about and that's sort of optimal, optimal bar setting, how you, how you change the bar. So people tend, when they do have something good happen, they raise the bar. They say, I'm great. And they get utility out of thinking that they're great. But then if you have to move the bar back down, it's painful. So where should you set the bar in a dynamic sense? And, And I don't think anybody studied this, actually. It's an interesting question. It's more painful to lose. Well, people typically feel that it's more painful to lose than it is pleasurable to gain. Uh, in most environments, that's true. I don't think it's always true.
0: Well, and I would say that, like, for the gym thing, that's probably something where you probably see a lot of variants because, like, I can tell you from me personally, like, I, to, to me, the idea of getting out of shape at this point is really, like, scares me. Like, it makes me very nervous. Like, I don't want to get out of shape. Right? So... That, obviously, is a very, very intrinsic motivation, but you clearly have people every January who join a gym and three months later, they're not in the gym anymore and they're unhealthy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's because people are hoping that by making some sort of financial commitment, that's going to get them to do it, and in that case, it doesn't seem to do it because they don't develop the habit of going. I mean, that would be my story. Well, but
0: one other thing there is the habit of going, what were they doing once they got there? Does that matter?
1: Well, it probably does matter. So that was one of the criticisms of our first study is that we didn't look to see what they were doing when they got there. So people say, oh, maybe they just went to the gym and they stamped their thing and then that was it. Um, And they said, well, why would they keep doing that after we stopped paying them? That seems pretty silly. But in the second study, we did some things with biometrics and we actually got biometric improvement. So we don't know what they did at the gym. You know, we had them do a, a diary for a month, but we don't really know what they did. Presumably, they exercise. Well, they, got, right. they, they had biometric improvements. Pulse rate and uh, body BMI, things like that.
0: Yeah, because I feel like if if they were getting some biometric improvement out of it, then that fear of the uh, the loss of it would be even
1: greater. But No, there's a difference between fear and regret. I don't know. Uh, you might regret you might, fe- well, right, past and present, future. Right now you fear, I guess, that you are going to get out of condition, but If you got out of condition and you feel regret, so what you might be doing is you want to avoid feeling regret. Is regret the same as loss? It's a tricky question.
0: Yeah, and I would I would say probably not. But that's yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, Okay, so have you done any studies, any any research into motivation of work, you know,
1: work in work environments and getting people right. Right. Well, that's basically how to incentivize people. Right. How to get people. What What's important to people. And I have done that. And I've studied things such as having competition between groups, having competition between individuals. One of my more recent studies, that's kind of an interesting study. It has a surprising result. We gave people money and they could contribute to charity. And they had $21, $5 was theirs and $16. They could give either $0, $4, $8, $12 or $16 to a charity. Um, one condition, that was the baseline, that was it. Another condition, we matched whatever they gave to the charity. Another condition, we had people competing on an individual levels. So half of the people in the room, the people above the median, they would get their contribution matched. Uh, and then the other condition that was turns out to be the most interesting one was you had groups formed. We formed groups of three people at random, and they didn't even meet each other. And we told them that the groups that had the highest above the median contribution, we added up the contribution of the three members, they would have their contributions matched. So we found that matching funds helped. Uh, There wasn't any difference between matching everyone and matching with individual competition. But with group competition, there we found that people contributed a lot more. And we had people who anecdotally said, They were upset that they hadn't contributed very much. One guy didn't want to even take any money because he felt that he might have let his teammates down. Hmm. So the motivation of uh, doing it for the team can be a strong one. So if you're in a group and you're competing with another group and there was another charity thing that was a field study, it's not exactly the same thing, but similar, they had competition between groups and that seemed to be effective. That's, that's one idea. I mean, as the conventional stuff of you pay people more money, will they, will they work harder? And that often works.
2: I, I, we spoke a week or two ago about yeah. this, right? We were talking about how I can, how we can incentivize the virtual assistant and it's the, the, the taxi cab, uh, is it a paradox or the taxi cab problem where the more you pay, you might actually get less out of people because they have a, a set amount that they want to make for the
1: day. Well, you know, if you pay me a billion dollars an hour, how many hours am I going to work? You pay me 500 dollars an hour, I'll work some number of hours. You pay me a billion, I'm not going to work as many hours. Yeah. Right? I mean, is that a paradox? I mean, that's the labor supply curve, I guess, is what sure, they doing. I
2: mean, it's not like a like a like the curve, it's not like a linear type of curve, right? At some No, point, it's not. At some oh. point you have it must be backward
1: uh, bending, I think is what uh, they call it. Yeah. I think I studied economics at one point in my youth. So, I think I had youth. Once, once, once upon a time, I was young. So you want to fear something, you should fear getting older, but there's not much you can do about it.
2: Well, unless, you go to the, unless you're unless you going to the gym more than once a week, maybe. once you go to
1: the gym all the time, yes.
2: <laughs> so uh, when, when I was your student, um, my favorite class was the negotiating class. Actually, Ari and I talked about my
1: negotiating tactics because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But... Well, it's partly because of you, though, I changed how I did it. I no longer had it that people could choose their partners. I had it that people were randomly assigned to a partner. Oh, well, why
2: did you change that?
1: Because nobody wanted to negotiate with you.
2: <laughs> hey, you still remember that,
1: huh? Sure. <laughs> uh, of course I remember that. Yeah, people tended to pick people that they thought were weaker or something – or maybe they pick so some dates or something. I don't know how people pick. It,
2: it but such, I have to stop that. It was such a fun class. I remember there was one negotiation. Because once, like, uh, he would, he would you, you knew what your grade was for the class at any given point. So, like, I knew already that I was getting, like, a pretty good grade. So then he would remove, like, your worst one or two negotiations so once you get to a certain point, then you could just use that to your advantage and then say to people, well, you know, I can,
0: I can afford to just use this as my throw." Yeah.
1: I really don't care. If you want to hurt yourself, go right ahead.
0: Yeah. 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 So it's really funny. And my negotiation, so I went to Wharton undergrad and we had a negotiation class, similar thing where you? Oh, uh,
1: really? okay.
0: if, if you walked away from the negotiation, you got an F for that negotiation. But yeah they would throw out our bottom, like one or two. So I, was, there was, I would always be like, well, yeah. <laughs> we're not making yeah. a deal then. <laughs> if, if, if you're willing
2: to do the bluff or really walk out and can afford it, you know, most of the time you'll win.
1: Yeah. Well, my favorite negotiation uh, outcome was uh, there was this, was a nasty negotiation. There was a three-party negotiation. Actually, you, you probably had this too. I don't know if I had it way back then. But you had three parties and you could form a coalition with uh, one person or with everybody. Uh, the way it was set up there was a stronger party. There's, well, it gets complicated, but there, uh, just to, to cut to the chase on it, there was a three-person group, and the person who was, uh, had the second strongest position uh, got pissed off at the, the guy who had the strongest position because he was kind of arrogant, and there was an ethnic thing that was going on, too, as well. I won't get into that, but what she did was she got pissed off at the guy. And she, I think, was the best negotiator overall. uh, over all the years I've been teaching the class. She took a zero just so that she could assign a zero to this guy. And it didn't hurt her. This was late in the quarter, and she had nothing to worry about. She was consistently getting A's. And This is a class that you either get an A or a B. And the guy was so pissed off, I think he might have learned something there. That was really fun. So you can use this the other way. There's a problem with the class. I mean, this is maybe not so interesting to your audience, but... The way I grade that class is half A's and half B's. Uh, the reason for that is if you give everybody A's, nobody pays attention. If you give out C's, then people cheat. There's more cheating. A's and B's kind of works the best. So if you know you're going to get a B, then you also don't have to worry about it. You can do the same thing. Um, I don't have a fix for that. I, I You know, you have to have grades... You want to have some sort of incentives in the grades, but you don't want it to be too harsh. So I'm still teaching that class. I teach the class every year.
2: I did it with my friend Darren. Remember Darren Katzen? Yeah. yeah. And we did that coalition one. I um, can't remember, can't remember
0: what, what the outcome was of
1: that one. But I don't remember. I mean, I could tell you the details uh, of what it is, but I don't remember your result. Well, I, I could look it up.
0: I have, I have a question, though. So backing up to a previous part of the discussion, is there... Have you found ways to enhance the for, for team for people who feel like they owe it to a team to succeed whatever is there any way to enhance that that sort of ingratiation to the team
1: I would say stronger um, sense of belonging to a team so enhance the identity so identity is something that comes up with the team the team membership or the group membership you have a sense that you want to that you really belong is important to you that the, that how other people feel about you in the team, or uh, how the team does, it matters to you. If you're uh, if you're playing baseball and you, you're an outfielder and you're gonna and there's a play out there and you're gonna you know you're gonna hit the wall. you trying to catch the ball. You know you're gonna hit the wall and you might really hurt yourself. But you care about the team a lot and you go ahead and do it. You take one for the team, mm-hmm. right? That's going to be stronger if you really identify with the team. It's also going to be stronger if you think the team is going to be benefited, receive a lot of benefit from your, your effort. So you want to make people feel it's important.
0: Well, and, and, but, and is okay. And that makes total sense. And is there some obvious ways to help enhance that self identity or that, that identification? I mean, obviously with a baseball team, you got uniforms, there's all sorts of things. There's reasons that they physically see that, but like in a work environment, for example, how do you help people feel more
1: uh, identifiable with their teammates? So I have no great insight over what you might think of yourself. It's not that I've really studied a lot of different ways to do it. I have my intuition about it. Uh, you could have the, the group going out, you know, a, ball game, a baseball team goes out for pizza and beer after a baseball game, mm-hmm. or they have meetings and they have a, a picnic or something. You can post how you're doing relative to other groups.
2: Yeah, we've discussed before together. Yeah yeah i don't have
1: any any insight that uh that i've learned from my research
2: on that one this sparks an interesting idea because we have a weekly we as i told you we're a remote team and we have a weekly meeting on mondays and we kind of really just go over tasks that have problems um to clear up the problems but we also ought to allocate a time to you know um, praise the people for doing good tasks, and, and like create we like a, a good bonus. task. We have a bonus, but we we might want to allocate like five or ten minutes to go over. Hey, look here, uh, here are all the tasks. Not just that need some extra attention, but by the way, guys, congratulations to Johnny because he
0: did this, to this, to this, and it's and they're no seeing the impact on the team. I guess of their work. Yeah, right? I mean
1: that could go either way. You know, if you start singling out people for praise, then maybe other people get envious. I know of a case of a university where there are, there was a chaired position a, chair, a, a chaired position which carries some benefits, and there were three people who wanted it, and one person got it, and the other two people ended up leaving the department. Mm. So that didn't help the team. For example, so I'm not sure you want to single out an individual. That that goes towards enhancing the sense of competition, and competition. I mean, a tournament environment can be beneficial, but you're not going to get this this aspect of the group belonging to the group. So there is some trade-off there. You want to have some competition on the individual level and at the same time have, well, it depends what's important to you. I don't know that you necessarily want the group. You want people to do things for themselves. In your environment, is it clear what a group benefit would be? companies doing better what would a group benefit be for you guys
2: well i guess a group benefit would be one va helps another va on a task for instance right yeah okay and i guess using that as one factor in the bonus bonus would assist. be not just you know how well you did on your task but how much of a team player you are for instance i guess could you
1: solve somehow or how well the team is doing the bonus is a function not only of your individual effort but how well the team does in some sense.
0: With us, for example, like the t- so every week the team does a certain number of hours, several hundred hours, and with each additional hundred hours that the team does, we give an additional bonus to another person. So there is, there is that for sure.
1: Um, but I right. just think about singling people out too. Well, it can go both ways. Yeah, right. It might be good to single out five people. I have no idea if that's right. I'm making that up, but it may be yeah. maybe something like that.
0: Now, is there a difference between experimental economics and behavioral economics
1: and game theory? Yeah. Well, you know they are overlapping subsets. They're overlapping sets. If you look, go back to Venn diagrams. Neither one contains each other, the other one, um, but there's a pretty strong intersection. Now, the behavioral economics movement the, has moved a bit away from experiments, which is really what I do. Um, they're looking more at real-world data and, and theory. Um, I like experiments. I think experiments are generally behavioral. There are some that are just really theory-driven, but even those have something to do with behavior. They, they are, it's basically a difference in methodology. I think that when you do experiments, you're looking at human behavior. There's no way around it. You may have a motivation of testing theory, but ultimately, you're looking at how people behave. It could be that people have cognitive limitations. Or it could be that people have fairness concerns. To me, the best way to look at that is in an experiment to see what people do. The benefit of doing an experiment over or just looking at field data is that you can control the environment. When you have field data, it's messy. There's a lot of influences going on at the same time. With an experiment, you can control various dimensions and change one dimension for example and see what effect that has and in, in principle you can look at a causal relationship so it's a bit of a difference in methodology more than anything else i would say
2: and what about game theory i mean can, what what do you see as the relationship between that it, do you view it completely as totally separate fields
1: no a lot of my stuff involves game theory but i would call it behavioral game theory gotcha. so let's take the prisoner's dilemma. This goes to the assumption that all you care about is your own money. In the prisoner's dilemma, if you only care about your own money, you're always going to choose defect and you'll make more no matter what the other person does. But you can get to an outcome that way that isn't very attractive for either one of you. And if you both choose to cooperate, then you both make more money. So I have a study that tells you what everybody knows. we varied, we varied the payoffs. Uh, we kept the payoffs in three of the cells the same and the other one we changed the, the payoff for mutual cooperation and uh, guess what, as, as you make it, as you increase the payoff for mutual cooperation, still being a prisoner's dilemma, people are more likely to cooperate. It's a basic prediction that it has to do with social preferences, it has to do with efficiency, but people like to have more money for the group, in this case the group is just two people. So is this game theory? Well, classic game theory says you only care about your own money, but uh, a more enriched view of game theory says you care about your own money, but you care about other considerations as well. Um, I've done some of the things where involving communication. So what do people do in a game where they can communicate? Will they get to a better social outcome? That was one of my papers, for example, on promises and partnership, where um, there's a first mover. It's, it's a little bit like a prisoner's dilemma, but it's sequential. There's a first mover who can choose to enter into a contract with another person or not. And if they don't, they get outside payoffs to five each, five dollars each. And if the guy enters into it, then the other person has a choice of whether to exert effort or not. Exerting effort costs $4. If the guy doesn't exert effort, then he gets 14 and the first guy gets nothing. If he does exert effort, well, on average, there's a stochastic thing. On average, they each get 10. So a better social outcome is to get 10 each. And what we look at there is if the second mover can send a message to the first mover, will that help? And it turns out that messages help, but it turns out more specifically promises, statements of intent are really effective in moving away from the standard game theoretic result, assuming you care only about your own money, because people care about... Keeping promises.
2: I guess it also matters how many times you're going to play the game, too. Ah, but this is one
1: shot. We were careful.
2: Because okay. if you're gonna play yeah. it a hundred times, it's yeah. much different.
1: You've got a reputation, than and a reputation has a value. Right. Well, that's the classic story in, in game theory that you're playing something called a centipede game. And uh, at each step the pie gets bigger if you keep if you keep both taking a certain move. Um, but at the end somebody's going to defect um, if you if you're going to play 100 times and you know that the hundred time exactly 100 times on the last on the 100th time you should defect because there's no more reputation to be gained but then it should unravel all the way back cuz you know that in the 100th time everybody's going to defect so in the 99th time you also are going to go to defect and it goes all the way back the practice doesn't do. That.
2: I would probably just defect only on the next round after the other person
1: defects. So. That's tit for tat. Yeah, that's the classic Rapaport strategy. The idea that you cooperate until the other person doesn't, and then you mm-hmm. defect forever. That's the grim trigger strategy. Yeah, and people don't one. follow that either. People actually they do that for a while, <laughs> and they'll come back and try again. I think it's not very down. profitable to do that. What? It's not very profitable to do that, so people eventually say, "Well, I'll give this guy another chance."
0: Hmm. Have you ever seen the show Golden
1: Balls? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so. yeah it's fun. Yeah. I remember that one classic case where the guy, where the guy lied and he and he said, and then he does the right thing at the very end. He lied, and then he did the right thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was very, it was really amusing. But anyway, yeah, I mean that—that's that's game theory, but and that shows that people people will care about other people, even though there's big stakes involved, they might still care.
0: But they also have completely open communication in that one, they can talk to each other for as long as They do, good. yeah.
1: Yeah, and they also have massive personal reputations at stake.
0: Yeah, and it's lot. yeah, exactly, it's on national TV. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's not anonymous, so in the laboratory you like to do things, oh, not all of my studies are anonymous, but typically they're anonymous, because you want to try and separate that, it, it makes for cleaner analysis. But the real world's not that way. Okay, well, so, we have
2: to wrap up, but um, right. thank you very much for your time. And we, we, we ask all, all of our guests, um, if you could just tell us the top three pieces of advice you have for people to be more effective,
1: however you want to interpret that. If you want something in this life, ask for it. What, the, what I do when someone says no to me is I say, what do you mean no? Okay. And believe in yourself. Okay, Those are, that's great.
0: Very effective. Well, that was really great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, guys. It was fun.